Thank you so much for being here. It's a privilege to worship God with you together. A privilege to open up God's Word. I'm going to just pray briefly now that I do a decent job of uh, unpacking this prayer. Let, let's, let's, if, you could, if you could ask God with me, that'd be great. Heavenly Father, please, uh, by Your Spirit, help me to say true things. Connect me with Your Word. Connect me with Your heart. And Father, for all of us, including me, by Your Spirit, Connect us with you and your word that we may hear what you say and take it seriously, that we may hear what you say and take you at your word. Father, we pray that you might cut our hearts open, that you might penetrate more deeply into it than has been the case for a while, so that your name might be glorified and that everyone would be able to see things happen in our lives that may will make them say that Jesus that this person follows must be amazing. And we ask it in his name. Amen. Well, we have been digging into Daniel. We're up to Daniel chapter 9. We've been thinking about uh, in this sort of latter part of the book about how to live in hope how, and how the visions that Daniel has given uh, give hope and give that excited sort of joy and looking forward to the future even when it's, it's been pretty messy. And we could, as we saw last week, that the future is going to look pretty messy, even in a way that made Daniel uh, feel pretty pale. Now, we're into this next section. And in this section, we don't actually start with a vision. We actually start with this, with this, this context where Daniel realises something is up. Now, the, con- the context is for this is... Um, the Babylonian Empire, you guys have, who have been here for a while have, have been h- picking this up. We started with uh, Nebuchadnezzar. That's Nebuchadnezzar 2 there in that second, the second king there. That's when Daniel gets taken out into captivity. And then we've gone along. Daniel sort of survives a whole bunch of kings and God seems to be much more in charge and even Daniel seems to be more in charge than they are until the Medo-Persian Empire rocks up and takes the kingdom from Belshazzar at that fateful uh, writing on the wall incident that night where God says, tonight your kingdom will be taken from you. From that point on, uh, a bunch of Medo-Persian emperors come and then eventually we get to, uh, sorry, that's down until you get to one called Darius and then you go down to the rest of them until we get to Alexander the Great a couple of hundred years later. Now, the difficulty for us in that line, that's sort of the, the accepted history, as it were, that's... that's, that's Historians putting together all of the um, inscriptions and everything we've got and the, the sort of the uh, Babylonian and Persian annals of the kings to work out what's happened. Now, the difficulty is, you see when you get to that Darius the Great there, so we'll go back up, that guy there, he doesn't come along until Daniel's well and truly dead. Daniel would be like really old if you managed to see that guy. And so at the start of our passage tonight, when you've got this happening in the reign of the early parts of the reign of Darius, it's a bit tricky because as from history, we don't know who this particular Darius is. No one does. See, there's a bit of a bind. See, according to the book of Daniel, when this Medo-Persian empire conquered Babylon, that night Cyrus comes in, the book of Daniel says Darius the Mede became king. But the thing is, multiple other historical records have Cyrus already being the king of Persia at the time of the conquest of Babylon. So it's firmly established in history. He has conquered all sorts of other lands and then eventually comes back um, to take Babylon. And so it looks like it's a bit of a, it looks like a, bit of a, a difficult spot. And Daniel is one of those books. Daniel is one of those books where uh, the classic liberal uh, critical scholars will say, hey, here's where the Bible doesn't know what it's talking about. 
of course, when you get to the later bits, when the Bible clearly knows a heck of a lot about what's going on in the, in the second century and like way too much detail, way more detail than it should know, they're like, oh, well, that obviously means they must have you know, just written about it after the event. So you, they're having their cake and eating it too there, just more than a little bit. But, but this is, Daniel is one of those battlefield books. And so I just want you to know that. So if you're poking around, reading bits of scholarship, oh, clearly Daniel's not historical. Clearly Daniel doesn't, uh, is the kind of thing that historians wouldn't put any historical value in. It's, it's, it's made up stuff. I just want you to be aware you're going to experience that. Um, so you get the liberal, liberal critical scholars who'll say, look, here's an error in the Bible. It's, it, this is the big one. They can't, they can't get right. And then you get some conservative scholars who'll make up really elaborate explanations for why. Oh, this Darius was, uh, it, it's, not, it's not the name Darius, it's a kingly figure. And, and they just call kingly figures Dariuses. Or maybe it's the, the general who conquered Babylon um, with Cyrus arriving a few days later. But as I read them, I, I, I just to let you know, I find some of those theories a little bit forced and, and, and they're just hoping to really back up the Bible because they, they, they trust that it's true, but they're really desperate to back it up and show that it's true. So I think they're a bit desperate, some of those explanations. And I think the actual truth here is we don't know. <laughs> we, we don't know. We've got a whole bunch of historical data. Some of it doesn't quite add up. And that's actually kind of normal in, in, in history, right? This is how things work. Uh, as we go on, we might find more things. And, and normally, I'll, in a situation like this, I'll give you a, look, I'm not sure, but I reckon this is probably it. In this case, I'm utterly stumped. <laughs> I just think this is one of those things where we're going to wait and we're going to find out. So that's the historical thing. I don't know why we've got this Darius guy who's supposed to have been the guy who takes over the, the Babylon when Cyrus is the one in all of the other histories who does it. But I want, but I'm going to want you to leave that. I want you to, to note that, and yet leave that now behind, because there's actually a a theological reason that that is that that is the the setting. There's a reason to help us understand the story that that is here. What does that heading tell us? That heading tells us that Babylon no longer is no longer in power, and so when Daniel reads the prophecy that he reads. When Daniel opens up this scroll from his homeland of one of the prophets who was speaking to his people, this is why Daniel gets excited. He opens up the book of Jeremiah. In Jeremiah, we see that, um, that uh, God has come and, and he says to Jeremiah, look, I'm about to take these people off to a land and yet their exile, their punishment will only last 70 years, which I think is probably more like the definition of a lifetime than it probably is exactly 70 years. Because, I mean, you can, you, can, you can judge the start of it from the first deportation, the second deportation, the third deportation when the temple was destroyed. You could pick your start date and then you can pick the end date even. When Cyrus announced that they could go home, when some people went home, when the main body of people went home, when they uh, established the temple after they got home. And so doing the maths on that stuff, first of all, none of them quite work out at exactly 70. And really, I think when we start to pick up the numbers, particularly in this chapter of Daniel and try and look for specific exact fulfillments, we only get ourselves into more trouble rather than hearing the point that God has got for us in this chapter. You see, if the exile is only 70 years and then God will punish Babylon, it's only just one lifetime and Daniel's getting pretty old. He's getting towards the end of his lifetime. What's going to happen next? You see, that... Punishing of Babylon has happened. Babylon's destroyed. Daniel's still in the city, but, the, but the, the nation's ended. The first part of the prophecy's come true. And so Daniel's reading the prophet Jeremiah and saying, well, after 70 years, this is going to happen. It's like, oh, that just happened. This is a thing. 
the, the punishment is over. But then the big question for Daniel is what then? Can we return? Like it doesn't say that in the, in, the, in the Jeremiah passage. Can we find blessing again? Can we return to God again? Will God look at us upon us with favour again? Or is it just that, okay, well, the, we're no look, the Babylonians who beat us up, have they been beaten up themselves and now we're just homeless? What next? So Daniel turns in a desperate prayer for the answer. And that is this chapter. It's a prayer to know the future of his people. And you can sort of see that even in the angel's response in verse 22 and 23, where he says, I've come to give you understanding. I want you to know the future. Now, the reason why I sort of wanted to give you that, that bit of backup there, oh, it really is about knowing the future, is because all of the scholars notice that this prayer almost seems kind of out of place. Because everything around it is like, what's going to happen in the future? What's going to happen in the future? What's going to happen in the future? And smack bang in the middle of it, Daniel does never asks in the prayer, hey, God, what's going to happen in the future? Did you, notice this? Did you notice what it was full of as the Bible reading was occurring? Feel free to cast your eye over it now. What was it full of? It was not full of, God, what's going to happen? He's not asking for information. He is confessing sin, the whole thing. So Daniel's response to Jeremiah is not to say, hey, God, what's going to happen next? It's God, we have done the wrong thing. Now, First of all, this is a little bit strange because Daniel so far has been pretty superhuman, right? Like Daniel so far, he has been awesome. He has been a good guy. He is, he is definitely not the guy whose sin was the, the, brought about the exile. I'm willing to bet this guy is a regular confessor of sin. I mean, we know he prayed multiple times a day. This guy, this, that's how he got in the lion's den, right? He's refused to stop praying. So it's not like Israel's... Um, exile is his fault. And yet, look at what he writes. It's all confession and as if it is his sin that's at fault. Let's, let's have a look. I want to cast your eyes over it. We're going to pick up four things from Daniel's prayer. And the first one is, is that it is a deep and exhaustive confession. Deep. First of all, we have, we have sinned and done wrong. First of all, sin, that word, fallen short. I've kind of taken a shot with my arrow, but a bit limp. Hasn't quite hit the mark. We've not done a great job, God. We've been kind of not great. But more than that, we have done wrong. We have actually actively done things that are bad, morally bad. We've, we've turned away from the commands and the laws. He goes further. Not only that, we haven't just turned away from them and ignored them. We've actually actively disobeyed them. We've gone against the things that you said, not just ignored it. We've not just even done wrong things. We've done things that are morally bad. We, you know what I mean? Like the difference between breaking the rules and doing something that's just like makes you feel ill, that it's evil. He's like, no, no, we've, we've done both of those. We've ignored your warnings. You sent prophets and we didn't listen to them. We haven't listened to you. We have been unfaithful. We have been treacherous, betrayers, of the one who rescued us and brought us into the land of Canaan. Like go through it. There, there is just confession after confession, depth and after depth, because I think that's actually just Daniel being honest about sin. You see, it's always true that there's more than one aspect to our sin. Have you noticed that? So if you, if you tell a lie, well, you've told a lie and God said, don't tell a lie. Okay. But maybe you've also hurt someone's feelings. 
But maybe you also lost trust with that person because now people, or even the whole community, because now people know that you tell lies. Uh, maybe you, you will definitely, you've also said to God, well, God, you've said that telling the truth is the right thing to do, but actually I know better. I can deal with the situation better than what you can. And so I've de-godded God and put myself in his place. In fact, actually, I've then called God a liar at the same time because God has actually said this is true when I've said, no, that's not true, God. No, lies are fine. Sin always lies about God. Sin always betrays our Father and attacks his kingdom. You see, there's one little thing, I just told a lie, but there's so many different angles to our sin. And it's actually true for each one. And so what Daniel does here as he unpacks the sin of his people, as he, as he unfolds it, as you think, how many times can you say, sorry, how, how bad, like, are you just depressed? Like, are you just one of those people who like, you just can't stop thinking about how bad you are? And I don't think it actually rings true like that at all. It sounds like Daniel just realises that there's a story between his people and with God. As a story with you and Him. You see, because our sins aren't just mistakes, they're part of a relationship, our story with God. And it is godly and good to take a moment, and Daniel takes a good moment, to properly face what our sin means in the context of our relationship with God. And that is the depth of Daniel's confession. Yes, this is betrayal. It, it, it was I didn't feel like that at the time. I wasn't trying to betray you, but it, it was betrayal. Yes, this is me being ungrateful for everything that you've given me and not trusting that you'll give me more good things. So I had to go out and get it for myself. Yes, that's what the sin was. It was me not trusting you. It was me thinking I know better than you. For me, sometimes it's the, it's the worst. You're like, and you just told me yesterday in my Bible reading about this very thing and then today I did it. I'm ignoring you. You see, there's more aspects to our sin than just the single wrong thing that I did. There's a relational story. There's the, con there's the, the, the meaning of that in our relationship with God. Yes, God, you even provided me with a way out. You, I, was, I, was a, I was about to do that wrong thing and then something popped up that I could, it could have used that as a distraction or even as a reminder. It was even, it was even my, my accountability partner who called me up as a reminder that I'm not going to do that. That's right. They've been trying to help me to stop to get rid of that sin and I didn't take the way out that you provided for me. And Daniel just takes this time in this deep confession to grieve that, to, to, to recognise that and to confess that, the meaning of the sin in the context of their relationship with God. Now, it is, pretty, it is pretty big. Like that's a big thing to start to feel in your heart. What are we meant to do? Am I just meant to feel awful and bad now? Is that what godliness looks like? Well, we'll answer that soon. Stick with me. For the first one, there's a deep, deep confession. The second thing that Daniel does in his prayer is that he writes the wrongs of the sin by vindicating God. Rather than blaming God, which is what Israel did in the way that they sinned, God, he vindicates God. Verse four, you are a great and an awesome God. You're good. There's nothing wrong with you. It was us who went wrong. In fact, you have a promise of love towards us and you hold yourself to it. This covenant of love, that, that's who you are with anyone who loves you and keeps your commandments. You actually are good, God. Uh, verses 9 and 10, you are merciful. You are forgiving. Even, th even though we ignored the warnings of your prophets, then you sent more. 
You are kind, you're long-suffering. And then verse 14, in fact, you were righteous in bringing disaster. You see, see, why did God not hesitate to bring the disaster? Because it's the right thing to do. Because it was the appropriate thing to do. He would, God, he would have been doing the wrong thing because the suffering was correct, appropriate for sinful rebels. It would have been wrong for God not to punish them. It was His righteousness that brought that about, not His harshness. And yet, it's beautifully to note, it, despite all of that, it was only for 70 years. There's an end point. There was a limit. He was righteous to bring the judgment, and yet he righteously finishes it when it should be finished. We've picked this theme up a couple of times this year. It's another instance of God setting appropriate limits on punishments. His punishments fit the crime. Sure, this is, this is a big punishment, but it's for a pretty big and long-lasting generational sin. And yet even it had an end. We see here a God who we can be trusted to do well in judgment. He is good. So second there, that God is good in judgment. Oop, I'm not sure if my clickings get me through there. Um, number three. Number three, did you notice uh, the we in the confession? So Daniel talks about his sin personally, but most of the time he's saying we. We have sinned. We are wicked we have ignored your warnings by the prophets. And Daniel really never did those things. Certainly he didn't do it in the generations that actually caused the exile. He's a little kid. So what's he doing? He's, he, he's, he's, he's thinking of this as communal sin. In his confession, he's willing to stand up and say, well, actually, in solidarity with my people, we have actually done this. My instinct is to do the 100% opposite. I will stand up and say, he did it, and not me. And it's the temptation for me in my family, if some member of my family does this, and someone comes up and sees this bad thing that's happened, the temptation is for me to say, oh, yeah, yeah, sorry, I was trying to tell them not to do it, but they just did it anyway. And yet here, Daniel steps up and says, no, no, no. This is a me thing. This is an us thing. We're a very individualistic culture and Daniel seems to come from a culture that is not that. He is so in solidarity with his people that he confesses communally. Now, in Australia, we've, we've a while ago, this is an old issue now in one sense, but we've had big fights over whether we are supposed to say sorry for the sins of our forefathers. It's, 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 it's a tricky one. It's one where there's been debates over. And yet here, Daniel is doing exactly that. So just a thought that maybe we want to be careful before we rule out something that in principle our faith rules in. Just something to note and we'll see how we can talk about how we might work that out in another time. Number four. The thing that, the way that Dan said, so... So far, this Daniel's prayer of confession is deep, recognising the whole story. Secondly, it vindicates God in it rather than blaming Him. Thirdly, it's communal and willing to, he's willing to participate in the communal wrong. And fourthly, it is in God's name. Now, have a look with me at verse 15 here. Now, Lord our God, who brought 
your people out of Egypt with a mighty hand and who made for yourself a name that endures to this day. We have sinned. We have done wrong. The Daniel prays for God's name's sake. His, his care is for the reputation of God. And you can see why, because he actually thinks that God has acted rightly by them. It is only right that his prayer be for, the, that, that his prayer of confession even, like I think of my prayer of confession is for me, it's so I get forgiven, right? That's what I'm, I'm going to God to say, sorry, so God can forgive me. I feel better about myself. Everything's all okay. Uh, Daniel's saying sorry so that God's name doesn't get dragged through the mud. He's recognising what's true about his sin so that God doesn't get a bad reputation. Now, of course, incidentally here, all those caught up with God therefore do benefit from this as they are his people and they end up, do end up being blessed by this. Uh, and it's, the same, it's a sort of the same, similar to us with Jesus. If we're in Christ, then where he goes, we go. His vindication in the resurrection is our vindication. If Jesus is glorified, so will we be. And yet the confession here is actually not about him and about getting those benefits. It's actually about God's name. See, there's these three sort of elements to asking in God's name that, that, that Daniel really picks up. The second one, verses 17 to 19, um, it is not just for God's reputation, but it's also on the basis of his name, on the basis of his character. Uh, now, our God, hear the prayers and petitions of your servant. For your sake, Lord, look with favour on your desolate sanctuary. So again, it's for God's reputation. But as he goes on, give ear our God and hear, open your eyes, see the desolation of the city that bears your name. We do not make requests of you because we are righteous, but because of your great mercy. So there's, there's, there's this, this depth to, to the, the confession here, which, which recognises that once you, if you're going to really recognise your sin, you can't then also come up to God and say, well, now you have to forgive me but rather you throw yourself on the mercy of God. Not because we're righteous, but because of who you are. And so a second element of asking something in God's name is so that it's for your name, but also because of it's who you are, because it's the basis of your character, because it's what you do, it's who, who you actually are as a person. It's relational in the way that all of the sin broke the relationship. And lastly, it's in keeping with what you have revealed about yourself. This, um, I guess this, uh, the hard thing about being a human is that um, we, we kind of don't know God properly. I mean, we've got the Bible and he's revealed much to us about himself, but, but we kind of get these wrong ideas about God in our head. Maybe they've come from how other people have treated us. Maybe it's come from how our family was when we were kids or whatever else. Uh, and yet the, we've got to recognise that we will often be praying to the God who's not actually the real God. We're praying to a God that we've made up in our head, the God of our imaginations. I mean, the first sin, of course, was, was when Satan convinced Adam and Eve that God wasn't who he said he was. That he wasn't actually good and generous, but he was keeping something good from them. And so when they got the wrong God, they did the wrong actions towards the God and they didn't actually pray to him and go talk to him about what the snake had said. They just went and grabbed the fruit. And what we find here is that Daniel listens to God. 
He listens to God in the prophets. He listens to what God says about himself rather than his instincts. Because it would be very easy for Daniel to feel abandoned off in Babylon. And yet Daniel here believes what God says about himself. He trusts that. He stops and looks at the passage and says, actually, well, here it says that God is abounding in mercy. But I, don't, I feel like he's kind of a little bit in mercy, but really his, God's version of abounding must be pretty small because the truth is actually this. Whereas what we need to do is look at what God says about himself and say, I can only see this much. What am I missing? What am I missing? Where am I not? Where am I when I read the scriptures and I'm like, ah, really? I don't think you're that good as that passage says because this is what life's like. What am I missing in life? Where am I not seeing things? See, uh, do you get annoyed when people make wrong judgments about you? I know I do. Someone doesn't, they don't quite get you. They really don't understand you. And, and then, then what about that if people act as if those misconceptions they've got about you are true and, 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 and then act on them and then it f- works out in relationship and, and it's awful and it's hard. You don't feel understood. And yet we do this to our God. And, that's, and we, this is why we read our scriptures so that we don't end up doing this to our God. And so I think the, the New Testament kind of sums up these three elements uh, together as praying in His name. As we're praying for your name, praying because of your character and praying, uh, praying for the things that you have revealed, praying in line with the promises that you have given. So when you see that in your name, it's kind of these three things brought together, asking that God would act to honour His own reputation because that'll bring blessing to His people. Ask it on the basis of his character, his goodness, because he is good. And when we do that, we make sure we know his character, listen to what he says about himself, rather than fill in the gaps for us. These four bits that's worth noting from Daniel's prayer. Now, I did have a question from that as I was going through this. I was trying to work out why did Daniel confess? Like, how did he know that was the right thing to do? I mean, he could have done what, you know every other vision prayer was and asked to know the future. I mean, that's, that's, that's Daniel's gig, right? It's having a weird dream, get an angel to tell him what's going on, and he knows the future. What, that's what God's going to do. Why did Daniel think straight away, no, confession, and that's the whole prayer, everything. There's a hint in verse 13. There's a little hint here. Where's verse 13 for us? Oh, didn't even get verse 13. I am a shocking PowerPoint slide arranger. Okay. Verse 13, it says there, and feel free to throw it up there if you can get it, you gurus at the back, but don't worry if you can't. says, as it is written in the law of Moses. This, 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 this. As he's, con- as he's confessing their sins, we haven't obeyed you as it is written in the law of Moses. He's got the law of Moses on his mind. Now, what does the law of Moses say? Specifically, what does the law of Moses say about exile? Actually, it says quite a bit. And it's there in a couple of places. Deuteronomy 30, verses 1 to 6 is 1. But we're going to pick up Leviticus, verse 26. Yeah, thank you. Just as is written in the law of Moses, all this disaster has come upon us. See, it's the exile. Is he, Daniel's mind is caused by their, God's just doing what he promised he would do in his covenant when people disobeyed him. And, and now if we get to Leviticus 26, if you can flick forward to that one. Yeah, thank you. Well done, guys. You're great. But if they will confess their sins, where are we? That's, oh, here we go. So I will scatter you among the nations. I'll draw out my sword and pursue you. Your land will be laid waste. Your city will lie in ruins. That part has happened. So this is the, this is, this is the law given to Moses. Then he comes forward. But if they will confess their sins. 
interestingly, and the sins of their ancestors, their unfaithfulness and their hostility toward me. For their sake, I will remember the covenant that I made with their ancestors, whom I brought out of Egypt in the sight of the nations to be their God. I am the Lord. You see, this is how Daniel knew that he needed to confess now. He read this Bible he, and he read the scroll of prophet Jeremiah, which had become part of the Bible, and he's put two and two together. In this case, Leviticus and Jeremiah, and he's put them into action. He has listened to God and said, God, I trust that you are who you say you are. I'm gonna, I'm gonna believe your word, not what I feel and think. And I'm gonna put it into action. I'm gonna do what you have asked. I'm going to confess my sin and the sin of my ancestors. And if you read Leviticus 26 and then compare it to Daniel's prayer, you're like, oh, gee, he's just, he's just praying Leviticus 26. And what is God's response? God says, I've done it once. Oh, I saved them out of Egypt from cruel kings. I'm going to do it again. Second Exodus. I am going to bring them home just like I did with their ancestors. You see the obedience of Daniel in this prayer. He takes the word of God as true and responds to exactly what God says. He's praying Leviticus 26, right down to the mention of the Exodus, hinting that God can do it again. You're the God who brought your people out of Egypt, he prays. Now, he's, why does he do this? Because he is so desperate. He knows that his nation, his chances of returning to blessing count on this. He's off in Babylon. His country is a, is a, is a wreck. It doesn't exist anymore. He is desperate for God to, to bless them once again. And so he takes God at his word. He reads his word and then prays out of it. Now, I um, think I left my... Uh, I'll show you afterwards if you want to have a look at this. There's a little book that I got in my backpack. I brought it, but I didn't bring it up here because I forgot because that's how I roll. Um, it's called uh, uh, Call to Spiritual Reformation uh, by Don Carson. And, and what it is is a little book of Paul's prayers. And it just takes you through some of Paul's prayers. Uh, it gives you, uh, this is just material from the Bible to help you understand who your God is and what he would have us pray. And you think, hold on, that's the why would I just pray Paul's prayer from the Bible? Can't I just pray personally? It's like, well, yeah, but how do you know the God that you, that who you're praying to and what he wants you to pray? Why don't we pray in line with what he has offered us, with the models that he's given? So I'm going to start reading A Call to Spiritual Reformation. If you want to hold me accountable, come up to me next week, snicker at um, how few pages that I've read and encourage me to keep going. Uh, and I want to be doing that. So, uh, and yeah, feel free to come and uh, borrow it from me afterwards. Now, this issue of confession. Um, Daniel makes this big deal about it. And, and this question of, am I meant to feel bad? Like, like, if we're meant to do confession, if we're meant to even confess and, and to... to um, identify with the sins of our ancestors, like uh, surely that's going to be awful. Surely I'm going to end up depressed. Surely I'm going to face all of this sadness. Well, it's interesting. In, in Acts chapter 2, um, Peter, Peter was pretty harsh. When the very first, this is, this is the very first Christian sermon, Jesus has gone back to heaven, Holy Spirit's just come down, and he says, you killed Jesus to the Jews who were there. And your forefathers, later on in Stephen's speech in chapter 7, your forefathers killed all the prophets who came before him. You're just like them. And they say, so what do we do? And Peter says, 
repent, turn, repent of your sins and be depressed. No, it doesn't say that. It says, turn, repent of your sins, face the truth, acknowledge the truth, go to the sad place, feel the feelings, feel, feel just how badly you and I betrayed God and he will send times of refreshment upon you. You see, confession is the route to refreshment. The, the genuine, not overwrought, the genuine confession of Daniel, where he just says, look, really, our sin amounts to this. It amounts to betrayal. It amounts to this. It amounts to this. It really is. That is the route to refreshment from God. Even if that sin wasn't kind of technically your fault, as Daniel prays for the sins even of others. Now, Daniel's not even the king, by the way. He, he, and yet he takes this responsibility on himself, understanding he's part of the collective. He represents them. And so, brothers and sisters, I, I want to encourage you, encourage me, pray for each other. Pray that God would forgive the person who has sinned against you. Not even just pray that you will, you know, not even just pray that you'll have the strength to forgive them, but ask that God wouldn't hold it against them either. Even though it hurts you, even though it is the other person's fault. Especially, I think particularly if it's a brother or a sister, because we are one. We are we are we. We are a collective. We're so uh, modern Australia is so individualistic. I'm not. I'm not praying to God for God to forgive their sins. That's their problem. You know, don't we think about that? We'll often pray that God will bring them to a conviction that they will say sorry, so that they can have their sins. But do you see how there's something here? That's 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 cares for the other. I mean, I think I often act like God's a bank, you know? And so like everyone has to do their own transactions. Like everyone has to call up and give their own password and their date of birth and all that sort of stuff. So don't just really that person, so they're the only one who can do You don't need a password to intercede with someone before God. You don't need to verify your identity that it's that it really is you. Daniel prays for the forgiveness of other people, even the people who ended up making him Go into Babylon in exile. All right, we'll finish up soon. Um, the end of this chapter is messy as you get into all of the, the numbers and the years. Commentators refer to this as the dismal swamp of Old Testament interpretation. All right, there are as many theories about all the little details as there are sands on the seashore. This, this, this is um, really hard to work out if we want to match this up to historical stuff. But we will pick up some of the important ones next week as we wrap up Daniel and the details. Now, a part of the reason, though, that this is the case is because this is kind of a little bit like prophets from the Old Testament predicting stuff, but a part of this is actually not that. It's, it's apocalyptic. It's, a, it's a kind of not just, hey, this is going to happen, so therefore repent and, and, and go back to God and then he'll make it not happen. It's all this stuff's happening, dude, and you know why? <sighs> Lift up the curtain. That's why. There's all this stuff that God has got going on in the background. And so you, know, you can start to see why some of these things are happening. So it tells you principles for why God allows things to happen, not exactly what's happening or what's going to happen. And it equips the person in those hard times to cope with those hard times, just like, say, Revelation does. Because behind the world powers throwing their weight around, hurting the sheep of God's flock, God is working out His purposes. These these powers are only present for a time, but Yahweh God is still the true king over the kings of the world, even when they're evil and they're hurting good people. That's still true. And that's the revealing for Daniel here. 
So, so, so if we think about this, what, what did this mean for a, a Jew under those beastly kings that came in the, those line of kings after Daniel was gone? What, what effect did God intend this chapter to have on them? Well, as they saw Antiochus do unspeakable things in their temple, as they saw him make, make it illegal to practice their religion, unable to approach their God in the way that he'd instructed them to, this tells them there will be an end. There will be an end. 77s are decreed for your people and your holy city to finish transgression, to put an end to sin. That's the revealer here. It's just as there was an end for the genocidal Pharaoh who killed the male babies of the Hebrews back in the Exodus and God brought his people into the promised land, Antiochus will have an end. He'll get his comeuppance. And so these, these apocalypses are kind of like as we've seen in the past few weeks, they have little fulfilments with more full fulfilments coming later and more fulfilments coming even later again. See, Jesus himself throws this old scene that was about Antiochus's time forward to 70 AD in the destruction of the temple. We saw that last week with the Matthew and Mark passages where this temple that was impure will actually end and be destroyed and there'll be a new temple, which is my body. But then Jesus throws it forward again in Revelation 21. This promise that evil itself will be ended, he throws forward to the future again. It wasn't just the temple. It wasn't just Antiochus. There will be a day, there will be a new age, when evil itself will end. Not just some evil people. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, look, God's dwelling place is now among the people. This is when Jesus returns and he will dwell with them. They will be his people and God himself will be with them and will be their God. He'll wipe every tear from their eyes and there will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain for the old order of things has passed away. Now, your life might be kind of okay, so it doesn't mean a lot to you. But, but we've got brothers or sisters who are under Antiochus's. Sorry, too many S's. People who, who, who are hurting, who are scared because there are people around who will hurt or kill them if they openly practice their faith. That's the truth. And we are responsible to them. We're not individualists, remember, in, in God's people. We're resp- they're our brothers and sisters. And so we ought to pray for them. Pray for their safety. Pray for their endurance. Mainly pray for their faith. They'll stick with Jesus until the end. Now, look, Daniel could pray all of these things because he trusted in the character of God. Eve, can you come on up? Um, Eve's going to read a little bit with me because um, I think it can be hard to we think, okay, can I trust God with all this? He says he's going to end evil, but that's just a bit of a blanket statement. Will he really do it? Maybe you're not sure about God's character. Now, the great, the great, the great example of God's character is in Jesus dying on the cross. But come on up, Eve. Oh, yeah, great work. Thanks, Mark, for bringing the microphone. And yet here, I just want you to catch a glimpse. Uh, Just like Daniel prayed for his people to bring about their blessing. In John 17, Jesus is about to go to the cross and win salvation for them. He's going to do the thing that's going to save them. And yet he still prays for God to save them. He still prays in in God's name for for God's reputation's sake, uh, in line with his promises and and on the basis of his character and his goodness. 
He prays for his followers. Come on up, we're together. I just wanted to make sure that everyone who, at least, well, at least, the, at least the English and the Mandarin speakers would get to hear this bit in their heart language. And so this, this, is, the, this is the end. And then uh, we'll pray after we hear Jesus pray for us. I pray for them, but I'm not praying for the world, but for those you have given me, for they are yours. This is, God, this is Jesus praying to God just before he goes to Gethsemane. All I have is yours and all you have is mine and glory has come to me through them. I will remain in the world no longer, but they are still in the world and I'm coming to you. Father, protect them by the power of your name, the name you gave me, so they may be one as we are one. Now, this is where Jesus switches to praying for you and me. My prayer is not for them alone, his disciples. I pray also for those who will believe in me through their message, that all of them may be one, Father, just as you are in me and I am in you. May they also be in us so that the world may believe that you have sent me. I've given them the glory that you gave me, that they may be one as we are one. We'll just finish there. Thanks. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for loving people who have genuinely betrayed you and done wrong to you. For that's what our sins amount to. Father, help us to confess the truth and the whole truth of our story with you to you, not to count it lightly but to articulate in words the fullness of kind of confession that speaks of a genuinely penitent heart. Father, by your Spirit, give us the hearts to do that. Father, thank you that your desire was for us to be one with you despite that, that you died for people, that your Son gave his life so that we might be one with you. Thank you that that's your response to our betrayal. And Father, we thank you for Daniel's modelling of faithful and good repentance. And we praise you that in your kindness, rather than, yep, you're right, you did the wrong thing, smash punishment, that the result of that repentance is not that nor even wallowing in depression, but is times of refreshment from you. Father, help us to repent, we pray, to confess truly and deeply for your name's sake. And we thank you that in that we will find joy. In Jesus' name, amen.